0: Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 917. And you'll learn in a moment why show number 917 has some significance with today's special guest.
1: But the 250 GT is just so sweet. And I was talking to somebody said, so what's it like to drive? I said, it's just perfection. You just drive it. The gearbox is beautiful. The engine sounds great. It's sweet around the corners. It has no vices. It's only like 300 horsepower. It's not vicious and takes off. But it's just sweetness. And then it's got the sound.
0: Hello automotive enthusiasts. I am so revved up and excited today to introduce a very special guest, Derek Bell. Hey Derek, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm tied right down.
0: <laughs> All right. Already. There we go. Derek Bell is a legendary motor racing driver who's regarded as one of the greatest sports car and endurance racing drivers of his era. He's a five-time Le Mans winner, a three-time Daytona 24-hour winner, and two-time world sports car champion. His career spans the Ferrari 512, the Porsche 917, thus he is guest number 917 here on Cars, yeah? The Golf Mirage era Renault turbo efforts at Le Mans, Porsche 936, 962, gosh, is there any car you haven't driven? The Kramer Porsche K8, Ferrari 333 SP, and McLaren F1, which, of course, earned him yet another Le Mans podium with his son, Justin, in 1995. Splitting his time between the homes in the UK and the United States, you'll find Derek at the world's most prestigious automotive and major sporting events. And in 2012, Derek was introduced into the Motorsports Hall of Fame of America in 2013, inducted into the Le Mans 24-hour Drivers Hall of Fame. Oh my gosh, there's so much to talk about here. And by the way, listeners, tomorrow on Cars Yeah, I get to talk to Derek's son, Justin, who will prove to us that the apple does not fall far from the tree. So, Derek, I've told our listeners just a little bit about your incredible background, incredible racing career. Could you take a brief moment, share just a little bit more about your career and your passion for racing before we jump into all the questions I have for you today?
1: Well, I have to say thank you very much, and uh, good to be chatting to you. Thank you. And everybody out there. I hope there are a few out there today. Oh, yes. But uh, now, I mean, I'm 76 now, which seems unbearable to think that I am, (laughs) and still driving race cars now and again. But, uh, you know, so racing really has been my life. And uh, I remember when I started, which was in 1964, with a Lotus 7 at the the age of 23, you know, I had no idea that I'd sort of go more than the end of that year. And I thought, well, you know, I'd do a few races, might win something. And, uh, you know, who knows what would happen after that. But, you know, you didn't get picked up easily any more than you are today. Obviously, there were fewer people trying to be racing drivers. But at the same time, there were fewer cars to drive. So consequently, it was much the same as battling through those early stages uh, today as it was then.
0: Absolutely. Well, and that was just the beginning, and we're going to learn a lot more about your history and your driving and some of the fun things you're doing today. But first, as we continue on your journey, I always like to start with a success quote or a mantra. This is some kind of a saying that has a meaning for you, and it's a really nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars, yeah? So, Derek, take the wheel.
1: Well, I get asked so much by younger people, you know, I want to race, but how do I do it and I can't find the money? And we all went through the same thing. And the answer is really is you have to pursue it to any end there is. Get a sponsor is really darn difficult. Invariably, it comes through somebody you meet, somebody who happens to like you, like your parents, be friends with your parents, and happens to just come along, as happened in Justin's case, and say, I like helping young people, although I'd done the initial stuff. as indeed my dear stepfather had for me. But I think you've got to go out and prove to the world that you want to do it. And in my case, that's what I did. I bought the Lotus 7 with a friend and that's how we go. So what I say is just never give up. I believe if you have the talent, you'll get there. And that's easy to say for me, possibly. Um, But there's a lot of people that have the talent but never get there, I've no doubt, but we don't meet them, sadly.
0: Absolutely. You know, there's a great saying where, oh, he was an overnight success. And I think in the case of almost any successful person in any business, there's a huge history of a lot of work behind that overnight success. And no doubt those early years for you were a lot of work, right?
1: Well, yes, they were. But, and, uh, you know, it was still a bit half hearted when I started with my friend John Penfold. I mean, his son lives in in America too, so he might be listening i 'll tell him to listen to this <laughs> great John and I did a lot of things together from, from basically from the time we started racing because he came to try and sell me some farm machinery for our farm and we got chatting about where we 'd be in overland and we said well why didn't and we talked about cars and car, every guy likes cars and so he thank God had the brains and the organization capabilities to structure a program so we could go and race so we just put the he put it all together, the costs and everything. It was going to be £600 between us to buy this Lotus 7 to kit it out, make it a proper race car. And I went out and won our first race at Goodwood on March the, 6th, March the 13th, 1964. And, and ever since then, you know, he and I were being close friends, uh, very close friends. He went off at the end of the year to get married. And, of course, I carried on to be a racing driver, thanks to my stepfather. But initially it was all down to my enthusiasm. But I really I don't know what I'd have done without him. And I think all of us and I say this a lot when I'm giving talks at various places, as I did with Fred Simeone just recently, is the fact that all of us have probably got somebody to thank very much for helping us on our way. Very few of us, I don't think many people, just go out there and dig a hole and then suddenly sort of find it's a pot of gold. They have to go out and graft and need help people to guide them and to help them uh, and support them. So I think a ton of us have that in our lives. And I think when you have, it makes a better person of you.
0: Well, we are the culmination of the people we surround ourselves with. And as my mom used to always say, surround yourself with great people. Yes. That's very important. So no doubt that is a big part of your success. Well, let's go way back in time and talk about what instigated your passion for cars and or racing. You talked about that first Lotus that you ran. But is there a pivotal moment when you look back in your youth that you realize that you were indeed a car guy?
1: I don't know that I ever do because from the age of nine, I drove on the farm. So I drove tractors and Jeeps and vans and anything that had wheels on it. it. had an engine in it, really. I detested hoeing sugar beets and digging holes and, cut, and cutting farmyard manure around on the end of a prong or fork. <laughs> I wanted to drive. I didn't care if it was a tractor at 12 miles an hour. I was just thrilled to drive. It was the thrill of driving. And I think it stayed with me ever after. I have no idea what it was that, that made me decide to race. But of course, Goodwood uh, the famous Goodwood track was up on the hills about five miles away. And I can if I was on the farm now, I'm not I'm in America. But if I was on my home in England, I could look up and I can see the grandstands of the actual horse racing track, which is above the car racing track up on the hills. Wow. About six miles away. So I can see it. And in those days, of course, we with there. You know, they didn't have this bloody stupid thing about, you know, silences and no noise and that sort of thing. You could hear Fangio going around the track up there or Farina. I mean, you can't believe it. And then I'd go up there and watch them. So it sort of gradually sunk into my brain and into my body, this passion for cars. And Goodwood was my home track. And at the age of 17, in fact, even before I was, was race before I had a license, because we don't get a license until 17. At that point there, I would still be at Goodwood marshalling for the Bognor Motor Club or the Chichester Motor Club, wearing, you know, waving one of the marshall or corner workers' flags, as we call in America. Yes. So that's how I, could, I couldn't get any closer. And, I mean, just to see the cars go around and see my heroes like Sterling Moss and my Cawthorn and Fangio and heaven knows who else was just a dream. And I never thought it would lead me, to me, into bit racing. So I don't know at what point I, I realized. I think it, the, the only the time that I realized that I was – Getting there was when a journalist came up to me and when I, after I'd done the race in the Italian Grand Prix, when I raced my first Grand Prix ever in my life, that was at Monza in 1968 in the Works Formula One Ferrari. And I was on the third row of the grid. Jackie X was on the second row, Chris Amon was on the front row, and the other Ferraris next. And I was next to Jackie Stewart and Danny Alm on the third row. And I, even then I didn't, I was just disappointed in myself that I hadn't gone as quick as Jackie or Chris, forgetting that I was in years of experience, by far the youngest. Right. I was older by a year, I think, but I hadn't done any racing like they had. You know, really upset with myself. But afterwards, a journalist called Mike... Oh, dear, dear. Mike T. came up, who used to own Motoring News. And uh, his son's a photographer. And they're a brilliant family. And Mike came up to me, who never used to talk to me, and he said, I didn't realize that you were a good racing driver. I never thought you had that talent. Fantastic. <laughs> and I think because... So that for three years previously, I mean, I sort of in those learning years, he used to say hello, Derek, and carry on walking. Suddenly, at the Grand Prix, comes up and says, "You've arrived." Basically, you know that, and I think that made me realise, "Gee, if Mike T thinks I'm good, then I must be good." <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah.
0: I've arrived. I've arrived. Well, definitely, did you arrive? I mean, starting at Spa. Oh my gosh, that track and racing with the characters that you raced with. Yeah. Those men. Oh, my gosh. Uh Yeah, we could do a whole show just about that in and of you itself. Could. Could. Well, yeah, fantastic. Well, what I want to do now is take a look at some of the many roads you've driven down. You chose a career that is fraught with ups and downs, huge challenges, big failures, all sorts of things that could derail you through your career. I would love yeah. for you to talk about one of those times that really stands out in your mind. But of course, the most important part of these things is what they Teach you. So tell us what that experience, how it, that experience helped you gain even more momentum in your career.
1: Well, I think the one, one that sticks out in my mind was again, as I said earlier, someone helps you in your life. And I've had my dear old stepfather, the Colonel, as we nicknamed him, helping me in those early years in Formula 3. And then he said, Look, you know, I can't help you anymore. I can't afford to do it. You can have the car, the, tr- the mini truck, because it wasn't a bloody truck like we see today with a massive transport. It was a trailer and a truck and uh, he said you can have all that but I want you but you can't go and sell it and go sell buy yourself a jaguar e-type and go around the coffee <laughs> <Yeah. stocks." laughs> anyway and, and so he, he set me off on my own and it I, I, I won't go into the story of how that developed from that but it did and within a, six months I was racing for Ferrari so whatever I did must have been right but I don't think I think I was just young and up and coming and approved because I'd won eight formula three races in 67 around Europe which is like around the world, basically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all the major circuits, Monza and Clermont-Ferrand, not quite Monaco, I was third at Monaco, but places like that in the Formula 3. And uh, when I moved up to F2, because it's the only way you had to keep graduating up to the next formula, you couldn't stick. Otherwise, you'd be stuck that you had stayed down and you should win. And if you didn't, you're out. And I know there was an American from California who did just that. and You never saw him again. And he was better than me up to a point, but I then kept going and he stayed where he was. But I went on, of course, the Ferrari stuff started. So suddenly I was in the international field. But the one moment, and I'm sorry to labour the point, was in 1979. Remember, I'd had my first Le Mans in 75. I'd been driving for Renault Alpine in 77 and 70 for the Jaguar British Leyland team in the European Championship. I mean, I'd done Formula One at that point. I mean, I'd, I'd done a lot of stuff. But uh, I wasn't really getting any, anywhere fast. And I realized I still needed to earn money. And uh, I'd have to go back and work on the farm or do something menial like that, which would have still been rather beautiful. But I don't think I'd have appreciated having <laughs> been an international racer. <laughs> yes. And um, I remember um, I, got, I, was, I was literally going to retire at the end of '79. And I got a call from a guy called Steve O'Rourke. Now, you'd say, who the hell's that? Well, I didn't know either. So we got chatting. He said, and he. He's a very quiet, unassuming guy. Tall guy, will be bloody great. Pebble glasses, about six foot two. And uh, so I went to meet him. He said, "I want you to. I want you to race with me next year." I went to meet him, and he was the manager of the Pink Floyd pop group. Oh, yes. (laughs) So, so yeah. So that was, and and he said, "I want. I think we should run Lancers in the World Championship sports cars." Right. And I said, "You know, I don't think we should run Lancers." I said, "I. I think last year I've had a bad enough time to win races." themselves they'd us as a private team take on two italian cars with all the inbuilt dramas of running an italian car and without their support so uh he said what you suggest i said we should go with the bmw and m1 and we get support from bmws who in fact i'd raced for as a factory driver with Hans Stuck and ronnie peterson and Brian redmond back in 73 and um so they all knew me and he spoke to the head guy spoke to the head engineer what was it now i think of it in a minute And he said, you know, what do I do? Do I let Derek go and, uh, you know, race for Porsche, which I had the chance to do, uh, uh, you know, about a month or two later? And the guy said, Derek can win Le Mans for Porsche, but he ain't going to win in our car. And I knew we could finish, but I got the opportunity that one race to go and race for Porsche. And uh, of course, Ix and I went and won it. So that was thanks to Steve. I went back and raced for him and we carried on through the year and Hobbs and I, and he actually finished... I think we won finished third overall at Silverstone in the 1,000-kilometer race. And, um, you know, it was a wonderful period. But that, that guy made my career completely change again because he got me, uh, you know, right out in the limelight. And I think that's what – and I've said this to Justin, Justin, who you'll meet tomorrow. He had said to me, he said, you know, well, I don't know why. So you're going to the race at Brands Hatch this week. And you going to the race at Paul Ricard? And he said, no, Dan, I'm not going to go. I said, Justin, unless you're seen by people – at the race, I don't mean walking around with your with your cap in hand asking for money, but you've got to be seen. You walk by a pit and somebody say, hi, Justin, hi, Pete. Oh, hey, what, hey, Justin, how, what are you doing next Tuesday? Can you come and give this car a run because Michael can't do it? Right. And you'd have, I said, you're not going to get it sitting on your ass back in Sussex. So that was it. And, uh, you know, I, I felt like that, and I learned a lot from Steve. And um, so hence, you know, I pass on some of my – sort of experiences like this one. Right. And um, it was the right thing to do. If we'd gone with Lancia, it would have been history because they wouldn't have let me go off and race for Porsche. Right. But um, the BMW team knew because they are sensible people that, you know, I had a chance to to win Le Mans with with that car, the 936, the Jules car. Is that is that all right? That makes sense.
0: That makes a world of sense. What's incredible about this story, and I've heard this from several other racers, including Bobby Rahal, who's been on the show yeah. and several others whose careers were just on this tipping point of stopping. Yeah. And one person came into their yeah. life. And they yeah. jumped on that opportunity, and that opportunity launched them into a whole nother
1: Absolutely.
0: area. And and I yeah. would imagine you must think back sometimes to that one phone call and wonder, what if that hadn't happened? Sure. I'm guessing someone like you with your tenacity and perseverance would have found a way, but… yes. It's incredible story, and the fact of his his relationship with the rock and roll roll world. And I know you're yes. friends with Nick Mason today, and you've driven his cars and so forth. So, yeah, yeah, what a wonderful story! Wow, what a launching point, yeah. and a great thing for you to share with your with your son Justin yes. of how to keep moving forward. Well, how about an aha moment? And I would assume in racing there are a ton of aha moment in your career, but is there one when those headlights came on and kind of illuminated that Mulsanne straight, let's put it that way, and gave you an idea that this is a next direction for me to go to become even more successful?
1: Well, yes, I I think it's a a very, very good question. I can see you asking everybody that. But I think, in my aspect, which is why you're asking me, <laughs> it happened very soon after. It happened following on from that um, 936 Joule drive, driving for the factory at Lamar with Jackie, and we went through and won it without even you know, lifting the hood up on the car. They just filled it up with oil and petrol and tires, and off we went, and cl- like clockwork. Yeah. It was unbelievable. But from that, of course, it was, again, I was going, well, what happens next? Because sports car racing was in the doldrums, up to that, right at that point. It was like, where is it going? Because… The rules have been shuffled and moved around, and we have, we have the 935s coming in and the 934s, silhouette racing, as they called it in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And there we are, backing away to the end of 70s. Renault come in, as you as you, you know, involved me with their two years of Le Mans uh, in 77 and 78 or 88, 78 and 79, I can't remember which. And, um, you know, it was wonderful to race, on, but really the future was grim for a driver. And even though I drove with... David Hobbs and, of course, Steve O'Rourke in the M1. We still didn't know what the next year held for us. And even when I'd won Le Mans that year, having been released by Steve because he felt it an honour for me to go and race for Porsche, that fact was that, you know, how did I still didn't know where the heck I was going the next year because nobody really knew. Right. You would have known because you'd have read the magazines and you'd have read cover to cover. And you'd have seen that there was a new thing on the horizon called Group C. And over in America, it's going to be called um, GTP. Right. Well, I knew nothing about this. And believe it or not, I'm absolutely positive I didn't know anything about it. Because I was summoned to, to Stuttgart at the end of 1980, uh, 81. So I drove with Steve in, in 80. And then we went and won Le Mans. That's right, with the Jewel car. And one of the first day I drove the Jewels car and won and then after that, it was like I went to the factory for the Porsche Cup, rather than where I'm going to in two weeks' time. Mm-hmm. And uh, Professor Bopp, the head of ICE up, it was a man, you know, Dr. Porsche's right-hand man, that led them through all their racing efforts from the beginning right through to the day he died. An amazing engineer and a, an amazing man in, the, in those really sort of grassroots era of racing of Porsche. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went into his room, and I was, you know, and we were t- I had a bite to eat with him, and he said, Oh, Derek, we'd like you to race for us next year. So I said, cool. oh, and then he said, yes, we're running a group C car, or group C cars, 956s. And I said, oh, wow, Like I was a bit thick and d- dense. So <laughs> I didn't realize what really he was talking about. So he said, um, we'd like you to race for us. I said, he said, and you'll drive with Jackie Icks." And I went, bloody hell. This sounds- <laughs> yes. So that was how it started. And so, so he said, but first of all, I must explain, he said, We'll be building completely new cars to anything we built before. He said, we're going to be building a monocoque chassis. We've never built a monocoque chassis because they're always tubular frame. Right. He said, we've never built a monocoque chassis before, but we've never been wrong before. I went, oh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> right. So then he said, also, we're going to put a flat uh, eight-cylinder engine in horizontally opposed. Actually, I think it was a six, sorry. But a flat flat, uh, flat engine in it, um, the boxer engine in it. He said, and nobody's ever put a horizontally opposed engine into a monocoque before. I went, oh right, that doesn't sound too special, but we said, we've never been wrong before. (laughs) And then he said, the car also will be ground effect. And we've never done a ground effect car. And nobody's ever put a horizontally opposed engine in a ground effect car. Like, you know, this doesn't look quite as good as it probably (laughs) should. Things are getting dicey here. (laughs) And then I thought, well, he is Porsche, And as I, he could see my brain like slowly turning over going, do you know, Maybe I'm doing the wrong thing here. And he looked at me and he said, but we have never been wrong before. So that was with that. And from that, we came to the 956, And the fact that, I, well, I was fortunate enough to be co-driving. I think we won. I won 37 races in that era of Porsche 962. <laughs> Only because I was just looking. I have a, a, poster, a big poster on the wall outside here, uh-huh. my house. And um, it's about the American series. It doesn't talk about Europe. And uh, you you might never have seen I never seen one in my life and it says naught and a, there's 50 photographs of the 962s whether it be a Dyson car or a you know a, a Herberts car a Bob Aiken car a sure. Leambray car but not Rossmans nothing World Championship and across the top it says naught to 50 in 4.6 years <laughs> and in 4.6 years we won 50 races and uh, myself and Chip Robinson and Albert won the 50th race of that year in, the, in that Miller High Life car. I only read it, it was just an hour ago outside. The, wow. Somebody from Porsche said they'd never seen the poster, so I took some photographs to send it out. Yeah. But it's amazing, isn't it, when you think about it, how that car it gave such a, a life to all us drivers.
0: Well, I'm going to add a line here. Uh, I love that, not that we've ever been wrong before. And we're choosing you, Derek Bell, to drive this new car. Not that we've ever been wrong before. And obviously, they weren't by choosing you and the other drivers that ran those cars. I mean, the era that that launched into for Porsche and that group racing was just so dynamic and to this yeah. day is a, a real special car wow yeah. what a cool story well yeah i kind of think how you're going to answer this next question i know but we'll see where we go with this and this has to do with a proudest career moment no doubt you've had many proud moments in your very long illustrative career but is there one that really stands out for you
1: without a doubt and you know what it is yes <laughs> uh, I mean, there's only one. I had, I mean, all the victories were wonderful. Everything that we did, and I was fortunate to be part of the teams, the different manufacturers, it was unbelievable. But the one, Piesta Resistance, was finishing third at Le Mans with my son Justin in the McLaren. Yes. I mean, to do that with your son on Father's Day, oh. considering I'd only been asked to drive it four weeks before because I'd retired from Le Mans. And Justin had called me out of time. Come on, Dad, you're going to drive with me. And <laughs>
0: Come on, Dad, one last drive.
1: And it was just unbelievable. I mean, we we should have we should have won that. I and mean, you if you talked to to Gordon Murray, which you know I was just the other day, he said you you were going to win that race. But as soon as we had that little bit of a problem with the clutch release bearing or whatever it was, which we knew we'd have if we got dry, and of course it got dry after sixteen hours of rain. Yeah or something like that. And, of course, it, it ceased to be so efficient and we finished third. But nonetheless, off the, that's the most memorable day of my life.
0: No doubt. Absolutely. Well, let's have a little bit of fun here. I always ask my guests about their first really special car. Now, the key word here is first because you have driven... Hundreds of very special cars, but was there a first one? If you think about racing, I know that first Lotus was probably special, but was there a car that was really, really special to you when you first sat in it and drove it?
1: Um, it's, it's not. I, I've been asked that before, fairly obviously, and I, I don't think there was. There was only one car that really... My dream was always to have a Ferrari. That came from the fact that I... How, how did it? Oh, I know. In 1959, I went to the Italian Grand Prix with my dear stepfather. Mm-hmm. We drove down in his Jag XK 150. We drove down all through it because you didn't have all the freeways then. Get down there. We stayed in near Lake Como, a little guest house. Went into the track. and the, the race day, I sat in the grandstands opposite the pits. So I was six, 16 years old or something. Mm-hmm. And I'm sit- we're sitting there watching a sports car race in the morning followed by the Grand Prix at 1.15. OK. And Monza still holds some special mystique, an atmosphere that's unique uh, that no other track in the world has. Maybe Monaco does in a different way. But the drama that the aura of anticipation at Monza with the banking in the background, which we never used. At least I thank God I didn't. But, you know, that I mean, it, it just conjures up so and great drivers that race there. Oh, my goodness. And so we're sitting there and out comes for the sports car race, which was obviously not a big, it wasn't a world championship one, but it was obviously quite important in it. Out come all these cars. And there in the coming out is this most beautiful red Ferrari 250 California, GT California. And the guy's sitting in it, and it's bright red with a light tan upholstery, And he's sitting there in his pale blue driving suit and his white helmet. And I went, that is something else. <laughs> yeah. It was like a dream. I mean, he didn't win it, but it just looked. And I thought, one day I've got to have a fry. It wasn't anything. It was right at the back of that thick head of mine that it stayed there. And the day after I would left Ferrari, or during the, with the subsequent year afterwards, I managed to buy a Ferrari 275 GTB4, which is a very special aluminium-bodied, beautiful, beautiful car. Yeah. I got it secondhand, uh, used, as you say here, from a friend, a guy who I'd met during my time at Ferrari, and he had, um, he then let me. Actually, he was the one that let me drive the 512s at Spa. Yeah which was my very first ever sports car race of my life in the garage Francochon, the bright yellow Ferrari. Yes. At the Spa 1000Ks. Uh, and that was his car and subsequent from that. Not that I could afford it, but somehow I forked out $5,000 to buy that second or used Ferrari. <laughs> but, now, that to me, I mean, that was the first car that I had that I, which you're saying, bloody Luke, for you, Derek. You know, I had to put up with a, an Austin Healy Sprite. Yeah. But remember, I'd driven all my life anyway, since the age of nine. My dad had XK150. He then had the first e-Type in, in Sussex, the XKE, you call it. He always had nice cars. We didn't have money, but that was his passion too. Right. So we, you, farmers never have money. They always have property, and it, you know that it's worth money at the end of the day. But Yeah. You know, I had an Austin Healey. I had a, a Sunbeam Rapier. I had various other cars, but that Ferrari was the one car I had a dream for. And even today, I still every time I see one, I just go to check. It's got the same wheels on that I had on mine. And it's silver with a dark blue interior. to the degree that I actually have a five fifteen Marinello now, which is just to me is just an older brother of the, the, the GTV4 I had then because it's easier, it's faster, it's everything. But it's the same color and same interior. So I'm very happy. So don't ask me what my favorite car was and what and what. <laughs> what if money was no object. What would I go out and buy? Because I've got it.
0: <laughs> you got it. Well, you answered a future question here, but we're going to. Sorry. Man. That's OK. You know, and I think you just probably answered my next question. That is the seller's remorse story. Is there one car you've let go that you really wish you had back? Is it that car?
1: It's that car. Yeah. Yeah, because it was the first of a very. I mean, I had some lovely cars. I had a Daytona after that. But which I didn't keep long, but didn't fill me with the same excitement. I would even driven at Le Mans that year in '72 in a Daytona for Mr. Swatters and the yellow Daytona. Right. Yeah. But it didn't have the same thing to it as that first car that I had. But um, you know, I sold it because I I wanted to buy the next car. It was actually quite expensive to run because it seemed every time I started it, I needed a new camshaft. Oh, it used knock the lobes off of the camshaft. <laughs> and um, but I, I loved it nonetheless. Yeah. And uh, so I had the Daytona. I and mean, of course, that that was, you know, more money. But I, obviously, I had Justin and Melanie, my two kids at that point. We couldn't get them in the back seat because there wasn't one.
0: <laughs> well, when I talk to Justin tomorrow, I'll tell him he's the reason your dad had to sell that beautiful Ferrari.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can do it. He, 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 he'll get a bit hurt by that. Say, well, he's done all right. He's done all right, though, hasn't he? <laughs> I think he's
0: done just fine. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, in our pre-show chat, you told me some of the incredibly fun things you're working on these days. And I jo- joked with you because the life of a retired race car driver, I mean, you are one of the busiest guys I know. So what are you working on these days? What are you doing these days that has you really excited and fired up?
1: Do you know, the, the one thing that fires me up is driving a racing car and in the past few months, I've had the most incredible year. The last five years, I drove Emerson Fittipaldi's World Championship-winning Lotus 72, for example, at Kyalami. You know, and it was, I mean, and I really was driving it hard because they said enjoy it, and I did. That, for one example. A few weeks ago, six weeks ago, I drove the Alpha T33 that myself with Pescarolo and Mazzario and Mariandretti and Jochen Mass they were in the other car, but I was with with um, Henry Pescarello, and we won the World Sports Car Championship in 75, which is, I was trying to think of that when I was talking to you just now, when I won the Mod 2 in the Mirage. But suddenly, five weeks ago, six weeks ago, I'm asked, so I'd like to do some filming with Petrolicious, and, which I'd done before with the Porsche thing last year. And so we, I went to the test track of Balocco uh, with Mazzario and Nanni Galli, and, Nanny Gally, and we, this, this German gentleman had bought, the sort of three special um, Alfa Romeos, and uh, he wanted me to drive them for the film. And the film isn't now yet, but you'll be able to see it on Petrolicious at some point, not too far distant future. Because of the fact I was so thrilled to drive it, I mean, it was unbelievable. Because as a racing driver, to get into a racing car, a proper racing car, and really drive it, it's different. You go to Goodwood and you drive a 250 GTO, beautiful, perfection. But it's not a real racing car it's a gt compromise that well you drive a cortina in the cortina race do you know what i mean it's not the same but you get in a damn racing car really built for the job and i got in that t33 and when i came in i was grinning like a 12 year old again what is wrong with you you still love driving these fast cars and it's so it is just unbelievable so i went on and they then said well you're enjoying it so much why didn't you race it next weekend the poor a The classic, the the Paul Ricard classic weekend. Oh, yeah. So I went off to Paul Ricard and drove it there with a wonderful guy called Sam Hancock. It's a lovely guy. And uh, he got much younger than me, obviously. And we were running third overall in the race. It it was only an hour race, but it was, you know, had to switch drivers in it. And we had a problem with the differential, but Fran will pinion. But it was just fantastic, you know, driving that car there. And then just doing other things. I mean, this last week, you know, I got in a... Uh, my, the Ferrari Daytona that I had, you know, finished seventh at the line in 1972, the yellow Jack Swatters Ferrari, Nick Mason owns it. And I'm driving that around Goodwood for quite a number of laps with special clients of Hennessy and um, Hennessy, uh, you know, Moet, Moet Champagne Hennessy. Oh,
0: yes, yes. Uh-huh.
1: And we had a wonderful, wonderful day. And as the day progressed, Nick Mason said to me, he said, come on, you must drive this one over here. I said, what is that? Well, I knew it was pretty special. <laughs> and it was the La, it was La Ferrari, Ooh. and I get in this thing towards a thousand horsepower. Although it was raining, so it was a bit reduced, but it was just fantastic. Yes, and I'm going. I'm so incredibly lucky. And then i you know, <laughs> I drove in the D-Type the other week at Goodwood, and I also in, in, a, in a demonstration. And I, I think four events this year, I've driven, uh, you know, a beautiful Bentley, 1929 Bentley Blower, the you know the straight eight Bentley. I mean the Ooh. Speed Six Bentley. It's amazing. To people, I mean, it's the factory, because I work with the factory, the Bentley factory. Mm-hmm. And it was just so wonderful to drive these really damn difficult cars, but pieces of, you know, pieces of art. Yes. Almost yes. beyond value, you yes. know. So, yes. so no wonder I get get thrilled about it. And then in between that, of course, I'm just talking to people about how wonderful the cars are. <laughs> so life isn't too tough in that respect. But it is. the only difficulty is it does transport me backwards and forwards across the Atlantic a lot. And I only came back last week from England. I mean, been there just five days and I'm going back again next week for the Sport awards and things. So it's, it's amazing uh, the life that we lead as a, as a sort of former driver. But you, as long as you keep going, you, you have to keep your nose there. Not that I did it intentionally, but it was my passion to do it. And I think you started the show by saying they're well, using the word passion. I think that's what it has to be.
0: Your life has not slowed down. And in the midst of all this, because we've been trying to connect for this talk for a couple of weeks, and, of course, there was the holiday in the middle of it and, and all of this, uh, Porsche invited you to come over and drive a bunch of their cars and film something, right?
1: Yes. Actually, no, we didn't actually, we didn't actually drive in this case. Porsche, uh, during a film, I, I'm sure it's all right for me to talk about it. It will be on YouTube, and it's going to be Porsche Motorsports Iconic 5. And uh, they had they have a car for each decade: the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Obviously, I wasn't driving in the 50s or the 60s, and certainly not in Porsches. But still, you know, I've driven the, the you know the, the 550 Speedster over the years. I've driven the the 904 GTS, which was the second car, and so on. And of course, there was the 917 in there, and the 962, and so on and so forth. But the interesting thing was that we did wonderful filming. It was 12 hours of filming from 8.30 in the morning till 8.30 at night, literally in these studios in Munich. But we didn't start the cars up. But they were they were part of my life, and I guess I was part of theirs. But in each case, I had to wear a cost, you know, the suit or the clothes that we'd be wearing of that era, not what we raced in, but what people would have appeared like. So at one okay. stage, I'm wearing a sports coat with a waistcoat with a bow tie. looks most incongruous, but... You know, everybody said, oh, they look quite good. So, you know, but no, it's just it's all these things they ask you to do. And you realize it, 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 not apart from the fact it's exciting to do it. It's the fact you realize there's a sort of, you know, it's like a pat on the back or a, a you know, a sort of, you know, what's the word? Not recommendation.
0: Recognition.
1: Yes. Yeah, recognition of what you did in your racing life. Yes. And you're invited to do it because. There aren't too many that did the same thing, you
0: know. Yes. Ah, What a life. What a life. Well, here's a very introspective question for you, Derek. It's kind of a fun one, kind of a unique one. We'll see how you compare to your son here. If you were a car, what kind of car would Derek Bell be and why? I'd
1: be a Formula One
0: car. (laughs) Well, I was expecting something along those lines. but Now, why a Formula One over, say, an endurance race car?
1: Because it's perfection. Ah. The Formula 1, I don't mean every single one you see in um, I, the, the current era. You can't see how well, fancy. yeah, something costs 300 million a year. Yeah, well, no wonder it's perfection. I don't mean that. I mean, when we did it, 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 there was there was nothing like that. Heaven knows what. I mean, my my when I raced for Ferrari, I got paid 500 pounds a Grand Prix.
0: Oh, goodness, yeah.
1: And nowadays they get paid a million or 10 million a Grand Prix or something, yeah. 5 million, That's something ridiculous. I mean, it, it's only the top drivers, but nonetheless… It, but, no, I think it's just they're so perfect, as I mentioned about driving, you know, Emerson's car at Kyle Army in South Africa f- five years ago for Top Gear, to suddenly get in a single seat at a Grand Prix car. And I drove quite a few, but they weren't always that good. My best result was sixth place for John Surtees, bless him, in the uh, Surtees TS7 at mm-hmm. Watkins Glen. And, but that car was wonderful to drive. And so I get in that now and again at events I do for John in, in England. I get in the same car, I, de- I mean, the car with a Cosworth engine in the back, but you know he doesn't want you to drive it fast because, you know, it's a special bit of history. Right. So you, you were driving it with you know very modestly. But yeah. to get in that the the car with um, you know, the Emerson's car and to get in the, the T33 Alpha the other day, which wasn't a Grand Prix car, but it really was because it just had a bit of extra body on to cover the wheels.
0: Uh-huh.
1: When you start getting into big turbos and that sort of thing and, it's a slightly different form of racing, but a real a car that's designed around a Formula One car is unbelievable. And 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 I'm lucky enough to be one of the guys that drove it, drove them. And there were lots of other guys out there. And I'm sure when you spoke to Bobby Rahal, I mean, I drove his Red Roof Inns. He didn't know this because it was after he owned it. Red Roof Inns Indy car oh. at, Mar- uh, at Moroso one day. Uh-huh. gentleman owned the 962 that, I, that I'd raced and won some races with, obviously. And he said... And he said, oh, I've got the 962 of you. I said, what's that other one, that red one there? And he said, that's the IndyCar. That's Ray Hall's IndyCar. He said, why would you like to drive it? Forget the Porsche. I said, I've driven that for 20 years. I said, I want to drive a race car. <laughs> so I got in and had the most wonderful time. We just freely giving that driving. I mean, obviously, I wasn't overdoing the revs, but I was driving strictly. It, it was unbelievable. There's nothing like driving a Grand Prix car.
0: Uh, no doubt, no doubt, or maybe an,
1: maybe an Indy car too. You're know, the same sort of thing. It's that feel. Yeah, of to- you're on your own. The wheels are jumping up and down, and what the input you put with the steering wheel—just that little touch—is where it goes. Yeah. and then what your foot does, and it—it it is just a marriage. It's unbelievable.
0: Very nice. Well, Derek, up next is the last lap. But before you and I put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's cars. Yes, sponsors. Well, we're into December now, and the holidays are here. And if you have an automotive enthusiast on your list that's hard to buy for, get them a Covercraft gift card. They can go and order anything they want from the Covercraft website. All sorts of things are there, including car covers, dash covers, seat covers, sunscreens, front-end protection, floor mats, canine covers, work truck, power sports covers. There's everything there for the automotive enthusiast to take care of their special vehicles. I've been a Covercraft user since 1975. That's right. All the way back to high school. So go to Covercraft.com, click on the gift card button, order it in any denomination you'd like. You can put it in the mail, they'll ship it for you, stick it in a stocking, and you'll make somebody very happy. That's Covercraft.com, Covercraft gift cards at Covercraft.com. What's every automotive enthusiast dream? To design and build that perfect garage. My friends at Metron Garage are a group of creative talents at Carsya.com. Okay, Derek, we are entering the last lap. You've been on many of those in your life. You know what that means. The white flag is out. And I'm going to ask you a series of questions and ask you to give us some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So here we go. What's the best automotive or racing advice you've ever received?
1: From Graham Hill, who was, became world Formula One champion. And Graham was behind me on the grid And his very words, when I let the clutch out and went over the top of Jock and Rint at the start of a race in uh, New Zealand, and I went over the top, and uh, that night, Graham said, what the hell were you doing today? He said, if I'd done the same, somebody would have got hurt. And he said, "Never, never go until the guy in front moves. And of course, that was it. Now, nowadays, of course, we, have, we don't have standing starts, but it was, they have rolling starts. So, yeah. But yeah. That it's the only thing that any driver has ever said to me, <laughs> particularly a man who's a world champion, said to me, because you would never normally tell a younger driver unless he was being a bloody idiot. But basically, he said to me, what the hell was that about? In other words, you're driving like an idiot. Yeah. And I shouldn't have let the clutch out because I assumed Jochen would go and uh, anyway he didn't he so didn't. that was the only that was the advice I got. don't go don't let the clutch out until the other guy in front of you moves
0: thank you very much graham would you share one of your personal habits you believe has helped contribute to your many successes over the years
1: always respect the people that helped you or help you very nice absolutely
0: now how about a resource there are lots of huge great resources these days especially with the internet but is there one in particular that you like you'd like to share
1: that's it. It's a very good question, but um, I'm just really dead boring. I think that's the problem. <laughs> But I do. I always go to the sports page because I always want to see how motor racing people are getting on. It's a bit of a pity because if you read the British papers, you only read about the, the European drivers in America. You only read about the Americans, which is fair enough in a way. I understand. um, No, that's that's all I can say is I'm interested interested to know how everybody else is getting on.
0: Very nice. Now, if I could arrange for you to have a sit down and have a drink or a cup of tea with anyone in the automotive industry or field, living or deceased, who would that person be?
1: Oh, dear. There are so many people.
0: I know. It's a hard one.
1: Yeah, that is a hard one. I think somebody like Dan Gurney. I think Dan is such a, a, a... all round, the most delightful man i probably ever met in racing. i never raced for him. I raced with, against him at that time at the Italian Grand Prix. But, I mean, Dan Gurney, I think for all he's done for racing and his, you know, he won Le Mans. I think I'm right in saying, you know, he was an IndyCar driver. He did absolutely everything and then had his own teams. Yeah. And he always seems so easygoing and people seem to love him. Yep. You never hear bad stories about Dan Gurney that I'm aware of. And I just love his company and his beautiful wife, you
0: know. Yes, I know. What a wonderful guy. I've had the pleasure of meeting him several times, and what a life he has lived. Now, how about a book? Is there a book you've read that you think our listeners would really enjoy?
1: I don't read them that much because I've got so many books, and it's usually about all the drivers that uh, that I met. Some of them I've never even read, opened the book up, but I've got it. Right. Going away from that, I think – to some of the films that are out there, I think there's an intriguing book. You a, and I think it ties up with a film that's been out recently called, called Williams. Mm-hmm. It's about Frank Williams. Ah. And um, Frank, I knew because we raced together in Formula 3 and I raced for him in Formula 2 and I raced for him in Formula 1. And uh, just the character and what he went through and what he did. And if you read his story, it's unbelievable. I mean, the guy's handicapped now because he had a big crash leaving the Paul Ricard circuit. Uh, but you read, if you saw the film and the, what his wife went through and the family and how they supported him and he's just an amazing guy. And I think those, I mean, I remember when I read his book, I only read two thirds of it. I was flying across the Atlantic and I was in tears mm. because I read stuff of there were people involved that were affected by his crash, yeah a car crash on public road.
0: yes mm-hmm.
1: But the, the the effect it had on the, how they were trying to support him in his rehabilitation, broken back and everything. And. And you saw that and it brought you made me cry because I could I knew the people that were being talked about in the book or were talking about the experience. Yeah. And uh, I think those sort of books about people's hardship and what they fought through. And he's still around today.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you
1: know, he gave a lot of people wonderful races and world champions that he had racing for him. I mean, just amazing. So there's a book about him. I I can't remember actually what it's called, but it's Frank Williams, I'm sure. Um, and then, of course, there's the film that, that's, I believe, on uh, not what do they call it on Netflix, uh-huh. uh, which is just called Williams. And of course, it's the latest thing that's come out, which is probably much more uh, complete than the one that I, the sure. book that I read. But I, that, to me, I like that sort of story. I, you're going to say well, you like tragedy. Well, not really, because he did so much for so many people.
0: More about triumph, I think, in his that's case. That's right.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: Well, listeners, you can find links to all these great resources Derek's been so kind to share with us today on his show notes page on the Cars yeah website. Just go to com, type in a Derek Cabell, and that page will pop up with links to this book. And I'll even put a link to the film and all the great resources. All right, Derek, now I know early in our talk you said don't ask me this question, but I am going to ask you what I call the doozy question. It's a real doozy. Today, I'm going to buy you any cool collector car on the planet. Let's take the car you already have out of the equation. I'll let you park that in the back of the garage, okay? We'll forget about that for a minute, but money's no object today. I'm going to buy you whatever you would like. So, what's it going to be and why?
1: Poor oh dear. That's, that's tough going, isn't it? Because, I, I mean, that really, that's the toughest question because. I guess if there was anything out there I would have had it by now, but <laughs> I, I suppose I suppose in all honesty, I suppose the most beautiful car really and stunning because of my racing life would be the two hundred fifty GTO Ferrari. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I just think I've driven it three times. I was Nick Mason had his at the track this week. I mean, worth forty five million or something and uh, yeah. I'm taking people around for rides. Yeah. I think that is it, even, I mean, i raced three out of, in a five-year period at Goodwood Revival for different people, different cars, obviously. But the 250 dt is just so sweet. And I was talking to somebody who said, so what's it like to drive? I said, it's just perfection. You just drive it. The gearbox is beautiful. The engine sounds great. It's sweet around the corners. It has no vices. It's only like 300 horsepower. It's not vicious and takes off. But it's just sweetness, and then it's got the sound, yeah. and that to me, and you can see, I'm a sports car racer, really, aren't I? You know, yes. I love racing cars. I, um, you know, I could say so many other cars, perhaps, but that's the honest truth. That's the one car, apart from what I've already got. I got a very special portrait of the Carrera GTS, <laughs> where I've had 30 years, and um, but that is special too. Yeah. But only because it's so rare. It's one of 25 in total, yeah. And, uh, I've been, and, and I just love that car. And I did Lamana's sister car, so I have got that. So we're not going into that. But <laughs> yes. I think that 250 GTO is something spectacular. I mean, you might say, well, you know, why didn't you sell a 550 Speedster? Well, I think they're glorious to look at, be glorious to have in your workshop, and I don't know how much I'd want to drive it out on a Sunday, knowing how, how valuable it was. And you know when you drive, you have to drive that damn thing. I mean, it's a glory. I do events with that side of car for Porsche for the museum in Europe. Oh yeah, and they're they're fabulous. You know, I mean, I just really really enjoy it. But I think that's it. Yeah, I think I'm sorry to keep labouring on about a Ferrari (laughs) 250 GT, but uh, but it just that or GTO. um, I drove a 250 GT short wheelbase at the revival last year, and it was it's just divine to drive. You know what I mean? So. I'm, I
0: love races. Yeah, I think you do. Well, Derek, you have taken us on a great ride today. I knew this would be fun going around a few laps with you, and I've really enjoyed getting to know you better. I'm looking so forward to talking to your son, Justin, tomorrow, which will be really great fun for our listeners as well. But I want to thank you for sharing your automotive journey with us today. And I'm going to ask you if you could offer us one parting piece of wisdom or guidance before you rip off into the sunset in that 250 GTO Ferrari. <laughs>
1: Well, that's in a dream. So what I say to you might still be a dream. Okay. I, I mean, well, there's two things, But I think just live every day to the full. You know, people say, well, you're still so busy. Well, why not? Who the hell needs to stop and stop doing something they love? You know, it's, I've been offered a wonderful drive in a very special car, which you'll read about soon, later in the year. And, and I go, should I be doing it? Should I be? I'm as stupid. And I know that certain drivers say, you're crazy. But why not drive something if it means something to you? I very rarely drive cars that I wasn't or race cars that I wasn't, you know, didn't race in period. But um, some of them are so outrageous that you, you if you're reuniting one and and, and and they're properly put together, you've got to do it because you, you're going to go away going, I could have driven that. You know, I could have <laughs> driven that. And I know it's good to talk about the safety and that thing. But I just believe do what you want to do and really sort of. Analyze it, but don't jump in with both feet until you analyze it and then go for it. But make every day, every minute count.
0: Well, wise words from a man who is doing that with his life uh, to the fullest. So I commend you for that. And what's the best way for our listeners to follow along with all the many things that you're doing these
1: days? I think probably to listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like your website's got, we'll have more about it. I do have my own website. It's called DerekBell.com and we're rebuilding it at the moment being done in england because it's been a bit wasted for the last few years but well you've been so busy there's the there's your excuse yeah that's right no i i, I mean i think good people like yourself you know with, with what you put out and well, what thank you to put out
0: well thank you that's very kind thank of you, you. Go for it. Right. well you got to go for it well listeners again you can find links to all these great things derek has shared today on his cars yeah show notes page just go to cars com. type in derek bell you'll find that and remember Tomorrow we're talking with Justin Bell, his son, so we get the younger perspective of the Bell's life story, which I think is going to be absolutely spectacular, just as my talk with you today has been. Derek, thank you so much for taking some time out of your very busy schedule to talk with me and share your stories with the Karja yeah audience. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you down the road.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimble.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member Finra Sipic.